Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 38. Last time our focus revolved around the United States and how Washington and its allies managed, by the middle of October 1950, to throw themselves over the 38th parallel and onto an invasion of North Korea. For the most part, the UN forces and their governments back home were enthusiastic about continuing the fight, about pushing into North Korea, and making Kim Il-sung pay for the most explicit act of post-war aggression yet seen in the world. Yet, as we also learned, the feeling was far from unanimous. The hesitation wasn't necessarily down to the fact that by invading, the UN was overstepping its original orders. This was conveniently sidestepped by the loophole that, 
invading North Korea was necessary to secure the independence and security of South Korea, one of the guiding factors motivating the UN's resolutions in late June. Instead, the hesitation, the major reservation that the objectors had, was the feeling that the People's Republic of China could not be far away if they romped around in Mao Zedong's backyard. Indeed, it would be fair to say that the campaign to compel Mao Zedong to intervene was far stronger than that which urged him to stand aside. For the last two episodes, we've seen why this was the case. Both the Truman administration and Joseph Stalin required the intervention of China to provide a successful policy outcome. Both had worked for such an outcome tirelessly, and the first two weeks of October represented something of a crossroads. It was essentially the final chance to turn back the clock and forestall the intervention which so many feared. Washington's official line, which many sincerely believed in, was that Mao would not, could not intervene, but under the surface, the omens had been ill from the beginning. Furthermore, Mao's inability to accept a ceasefire and his incredulity at the increasingly belligerent stance of Washington as his warnings were blithely ignored, reflected badly on later attempts by historians to explain how and why it was possible that the Allies, or more specifically the United States, had gotten it so wrong, and failed to prevent Beijing's opening of a new phase in hostilities. The failure was, in Truman's mind, not a failure at all. A lengthy, visible conflict against a monolithic communist bloc was critically important if the desired budgetary increases were to be brought forward. Of course, alongside this process were some unfortunate public relations side effects, and it was for this reason, most of all, that Truman determined it was time to meet the man he thoroughly disliked. General Douglas MacArthur, on Wake Island on the 15th of October, 1950. It is to this island in the Pacific, 7,000 miles from home, that we now take our story. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. You know the story by now, guys. In fact, I'm so aware of the story, I don't even need a script for this part of the episode. If you would like to access the Suez Crisis, the story that all that great event entails, make sure to sign up for $5 a month on patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, simply by clicking the link in the description below. You should also know that when diplomacy fails is brought to you by Studio. So if you would like to get quality earphones, wireless, wired, over the head, into the ear, and everything else in between, pretty sure there's nothing else in between, but if you would like to, click on the link also in the description to get 15% off and send some love my way. Anyway, guys, other than that, it's time to get down to the episode. So the song of the week this week is My Sweetie Went Away by Bessie Smith, released in 1923. Bessie Smith was an American blues singer, and she's sometimes referred to as the Empress of the Blues. She was also the most popular female blues singer of the 1920s and 30s, so I think you guys will enjoy it. I will be back, as always, afterwards with episode 38 of the Korean War. Fighting all the time 
We never had any personal contacts at all, and I thought that he ought to know his commander-in-chief, and that I ought to know the senior field commander in the Far East. Such was the reasoning which President Truman later used to explain why he had determined to travel to a remote island in the Pacific, a dot on the map of American security, a place distant and far removed from the fury of activity underway on the Korean Peninsula. But what had driven Truman to really go there, especially when the act of sending a member of the Joint Chiefs, or even his Secretary of State, would surely have sufficed? Truman claimed it was simply time to meet this man, this enigma, who held so much power in his hands. MacArthur claimed that it was because the President was trying to get some glory for himself, a claim which was heavily disputed not merely by the President, but also by his staff. Most historians have seen fit to take the conventional line. As Max Hastings wrote in his book on the Korean War, There is little doubt that for once, MacArthur's scepticism about Washington's moves was justified. Truman was politically beleaguered at home, under fire from the right for supposed softness towards the communists. There were indeed good reasons for the president and general to meet, but the timing was such that it remains difficult to doubt Truman's desire to associate himself, in the public mind, with victory in Korea and with the victor. Max Hastings was correct in one sense. The timing was important, but not for the reasons that Hastings claims. Truman's act of going to meet his general was done for a reason just as politically selfish as that which historians normally suppose. He wasn't trying to share some of the glory. He was trying to ensure that MacArthur shared in shouldering the blame. The blame for what, we may ask? Wasn't everything going really well in Korea by mid-October? Well, yes, it was. But while it was the desired policy to engage in a limited war with the People's Republic of China, since the key ingredient in a massive defensive increase was a lengthy political and military stimulus, such as that which an ominous Asian communist regime like Mao's could provide, 
President Truman was not blind to other matters pertaining to this outcome. He knew and understood that a war with Chinese volunteers in Korea, while useful politically, would not be either useful or popular forever. Men would inevitably die, and as we examined last time, people would want to know how the government managed to miss the signals which could have prevented the Chinese from getting involved at all. As the war went on, the American public could become not merely disenchanted with the war, but also angry at their government for leading them into it, apparently blindly. Truman knew that he would not be able to pawn off responsibility to someone else. He was the president after all, assumed to be in control of a great bank of resources and information. His failure to prevent the Chinese threat would be adapted to by Americans fearful of communism, especially from the idea that it acted as one with Moscow. But after a time, people would look for someone to blame. After the initial enthusiasm wore off, it was then that Truman knew that he needed to be ready. While he was willing to share a considerable share of the blame, he would not share sole responsibility for it. That was why Truman travelled 7,000 miles to Wake Island, and that was the real reason why only a meeting in person with MacArthur would do. If nothing else, the act of meeting the triumphant general face-to-face could give observers ample fodder to look into other reasons for his journey. Truman certainly expected his critics to imagine that he had only met with the general to share the spotlight. But if this was the line put forward, rather than the reason that he was attempting to shift blame for the looming Chinese intervention onto the general, then so be it. This was an acceptable political price to pay for what he would actually gain, and in any case, the question had the potential to muddy the waters and distract from his true intentions even further, as indeed it did. As late as 1981, Philip Jessup, Truman's aide during the journey, was still addressing the Wake Island controversy. Truman would have been pleased to note that his distraction had paid off. It should by no means be interpreted from this new examination of the facts that I'm a huge MacArthur fanboy, out to clear his name and blame it all on the president. MacArthur's ego by this point in history was infamously enormous. For several months before the Inchon landings, America's allies had expressed concerns over Truman's ability to handle the potentially recalcitrant general and his independently-minded tendencies. The historian Peter Lowe even managed to make an entire article out of the ill feeling between the British and General MacArthur, and he was far from the only historian to do this. Any mention of MacArthur at this point in his career is generally accompanied by a mention of his ego and his neglect of proper practice because of it. To Truman, this was precisely the point. The real art in ensuring MacArthur took some blame for the Chinese intervention and the escalation of the Korean War was found in the fact that it was, if one knew MacArthur sort of well, so believable on paper. We must also bear in mind a handful of examples where the actions of MacArthur had been misrepresented to paint a certain picture. Think back, for example, to when crossing the Han River in late June was debated. Truman didn't want to move to defend the South Korean government until it was clear that the North had broken over this line and that the lengthy war he desired could be guaranteed. Fortunately for Truman, thanks in large part to Soviet pressure, Kim Il-sung sent his legions southward against his better judgement, and the next phase of the war proceeded according to his desired plan. Yet in this phase, an attempt was made to manipulate the timing and circumstances of MacArthur's military advice back to Washington, in an effort to make the general sound, to put it simply, more gung-ho than he actually was. This exercise was so believable and successful because it was known that MacArthur was not a cautious man. 
A cautious general, after all, did not suggest a landing at Inchon. Yet this action was part of a wider campaign to strategically portray MacArthur's character in a certain light. If the mission was to make it believable that MacArthur, in his immense hubris, failed to believe the signs of Chinese intervention and, motivated by his own triumphs, his racial prejudices, and his ignorance of events, did nothing to stop Mao from acting, then Truman succeeded. Rarely do we hear a condemnation of the President of the United States when one talks of the Chinese entry into the Korean War. We may hear some incredulous questions such as, how did Washington fail to see it coming? But I have personally yet to encounter a source which attempts to apportion all that much blame on the Truman administration for what happened. This was part of another mission of Truman's, to paint a picture which has endured to this day, that General MacArthur was somehow better informed of the situation in Korea, in China, in the Asian world in general, than the president, who had access to an extensive intelligence service at any time. The idea that MacArthur was somehow more clued in to events taking place in Asia, and that he was more of an authority on the likelihood of Chinese intervention than the thoroughly well-informed president, were all falsehoods that have been peddled over the years. Another great falsehood, of course, was the claim made by Truman in subsequent years that MacArthur had misled him when he had claimed that the Chinese wouldn't intervene on the 15th of October during their meeting at Wake Island, only to see this proved false a fortnight later. Even more incredible than this falsehood of being misled, it was the president, rather than the general, who was doing the misleading. One of the more surprising omissions about the Wake Island meeting was another overlooked question. How was President Truman to persuade MacArthur to meet him in person? Now I know what you might be thinking. He's the president, so all Truman has to do is order such a meeting into motion, right? Well, technically, most generals would jump at the chance to meet their president, but MacArthur wasn't most generals. MacArthur did not like Truman, and the feelings were known to be mutual. If MacArthur had wanted, he could easily have pleaded a heavy workload at the front if he had wanted to avoid coming to Wake Island. Furthermore, the very reason why the meeting took place on Wake Island at all was because Truman was eager to pander to MacArthur's whims. If MacArthur couldn't make it all the way to Washington, then the President would happily travel the 7,000 miles to meet him in a place not too far removed from the Korean front. So, how then did MacArthur feel compelled to accept the President's invitation? What could have separated him from his command in Tokyo and removed him from that critical theatre? The answer is relatively simple. As he had done many times before, Truman changed MacArthur's orders. On the 9th of October, MacArthur was sent the following directive. Hereafter, in the event of the open or covert employment anywhere in Korea of major Chinese communist units without prior announcement, you should continue the action as long as, in your judgment, actions by forces now under your control offers a reasonable chance of success. In any case, you obtain authorization from Washington prior to taking any military action against objectives in Chinese territory. There are several striking aspects to this largely forgotten directive. In comparison to previous instructions, such as those given by NSC 81, or separate directives issued in late September, much had now changed. For starters, there was no mention of any Soviet interference, whereas NSC 81 had accounted for the possibility that either the Soviets or the Chinese could intervene. Truman had floated several trial balloons in the first two weeks of October, to validate his own suspicions that the Soviets wouldn't intervene, including an attack on Soviet territory by 
UN aircraft, whereupon the Soviet delegate and the United Nations attempted not to respond with force, but to request peaceful negotiations take place. So the Soviets were no longer an issue. No one really expected them to intervene in Korea. But what of the other aspects of the directive? Well, consider first and foremost the wording. Whereas NSC-81 had permitted Allied military operations in North Korea only if Chinese forces had not entered, this directive allowed MacArthur to proceed in Korea even if such intervention occurred. If NSC-81 had attempted to avoid a conflict with the Chinese, this directive on the 9th of October appeared to have removed this objective entirely. MacArthur seemed free to act as he saw fit, yet, in another critical sense, the general was not free. Whereas NSC-81 had permitted MacArthur to strike targets in China if the Chinese intervened, now this authority was taken away. MacArthur would have to ask Washington for permission to attack the Chinese bases, bridges and supply dumps in Manchuria, effectively neutralising his capacity to properly hit the Chinese where it hurt, and reducing his attacks only to the Chinese forces that were actually in Korea. As Richard C. Thornton put it, MacArthur would be forced to battle the Chinese hordes with one arm tied behind his back. Truman made the decision to meet the general without any prior consultation with the other departments, a fact which made everyone nervous, and which even led Philip Jessup, Truman's aide for the journey, to imagine that the Chinese could well interpret the meeting to foreshadow some major new American move in the Far East. This was a strong possibility, as Truman journeyed to meet his commanding general in the Korean theatre only a week after the UN resolution had been passed and American soldiers had crossed the 38th. Mao wouldn't have had to work all that hard to imagine that the president was meeting his commander face to face to develop a new phase of their war strategy, an exercise so important it was necessary to do it in person. Jessup thought it was... Reasonable to assume that the Chinese communists fear that we are mobilizing forces in North Korea to invade Manchuria or to engage the Chinese armies there while Chiang Kai-shek makes a landing on the mainland to the south. If the proposed conference closely followed or closely preceded another amphibious landing, the fears and suspicions would be heightened. The possible bad effects of such a dramatic meeting will be avoided through some carefully prepared statement issued by the president in advance as well as by what he said in his speech on his return. President Truman, for his part, took at least a portion of Jessup's advice, and before leaving, he issued a statement to the effect that the United States has no other aim in Korea than to carry out the great purpose of the United Nations. Secretary of State Dean Acheson, refraining from adopting the same concern and tone as some of his colleagues, was eager to ensure that the policy in regard to Taiwan would not become unsettled, because I thought this was critical in our relations with China, and that we had made a good deal of progress with members of the United Nations by advocating a UN mission and UN consideration of the future of Taiwan, along with the UN resolution against military action either way. The President assured me that I need not have any worries on this account. We shall not be surprised that Acheson found comfort in Truman's assurances. Truman had no intention of rousing Chiang Kai-shek unless it was sure to lead to Chinese intervention in Korea. The Taiwan chestnut had been waved at Mao Zedong before, but there was a danger that by pushing this button too often, the proxy limited war in Korea could well become a full-blown war with the People's Republic. This was something Truman unquestionably did not want, and the histories are at least correct that this difference in opinion was a deciding factor 
in what led to the eventual dismissal of MacArthur by the President. Indeed, the fact that Acheson's account of the preparation he and Truman did for the meeting is peppered with truths as well as falsehoods makes the account all the more interesting. When Acheson said the following, he was telling the truth. We have full appreciation of the strategic position of China and General MacArthur's views on the subject, but we also have very much in mind the general international situation and the moral and practical value of keeping the support of an overwhelming majority of the United Nations for our action in the Far East. Our present tactic is directed towards getting international support for the military neutralization of Taiwan and for an international determination that the problem of Taiwan must be settled by peaceful means. If Taiwan was a hot-button issue which Washington would only selectively press, then it makes sense that Acheson had genuine fears about MacArthur's tendency to go overboard in any response to Chinese intervention. Indeed, such fears were well-founded, as going overboard was precisely what MacArthur attempted to do in the end. Yet, when Acheson claimed the following, he was telling a porky. We must do everything we can to localise the conflict in Korea. Politically, we must assure the Chinese and the Soviets that they are not being threatened militarily in Korea, but we must also keep before them the recklessness of active participation on their part. Militarily, we must use extreme measures to prevent incidents involving United Nations forces and Chinese or Soviet forces or territory. As Truman's efforts to test the Soviets had revealed, Moscow had no desire to become involved in Korea and had attempted to use the United Nations as a platform to reduce the conflict's impact on themselves. Washington was well informed of the exodus of the remaining Soviet military personnel out of North Korea, and the initial scare that Moscow would attempt to use the war to their advantage elsewhere had also abated somewhat. If the reference to Soviet intervention was a false flag, then so was Acheson's professed desire to prevent incidents involving UN forces and Chinese forces or territory. Acheson knew as well as Truman that orders from MacArthur to advance not really into North Korea, but beyond Pyongyang and into the border reaches of Kim's regime along the Yalu River, were exercises designed specifically to provoke Beijing. Had Truman wanted to, North Korea could have been removed from the map with the exception of two barren, mountainous provinces which straddled the Manchurian border. Setting up shop here would have certainly been a win, a win with some healthy political spin in Washington, including revelations about the genuine likelihood of Chinese intervention, which the administration knew too well, and thus the act of stopping here before total occupation of geographic North Korea had been completed wouldn't have been as impossible as some authors claim. Pior can go a long way in turning a half-win into a full-blown win. Truman and company were sitting on an array of material that pointed to Chinese fears, then incredulity, then warnings, and then declarations to resist at all costs. Much of these declarations from the Chinese side had not been publicised, and those that were could be dismissed as empty threats. Yet, if the Truman administration had wanted to, if peace with China had been the true objective above all, and if Acheson genuinely wanted to avoid conflict with Mao Zedong, then he and his peers would have taken the Chinese seriously, and they would have made political capital out of such threats when they reasoned publicly themselves in the United States or in the United Nations or anywhere else for the need for a proper peace. War fever and being flushed with triumph are the excuses normally presented to explain why Washington never took the Chinese threat seriously. But in terms of the historical debate, this only adds to the bank of questions surrounding America's participation in the Korean War. Objectively speaking, 
How could such a litany of warnings have been ignored by an administration that wanted peace? Just think about that. Think about the act of ignoring a warning sent by a potential military threat, and then multiply that warning over and over again. Last time we asked how, in terms of intelligence gathered or intercepted, the world of SIGINT, Signal Intelligence, how the administration managed to justify its ignorance of the massive buildup of Chinese arms and military preparations. Those warning signs were a privately recorded testament to China's preparation for war, but the public statements which went along with them surely presented a more damning indication of Mao's intentions than subsequent historians claimed. Truman wasn't confused or ignorant of such developments, he was deliberately shutting his ears to them, as per his policy line. I believe we've spent enough time setting the groundwork and examining the debate surrounding the meeting, so I think it's time we moved on to the actual meeting itself. As a final note, it is worth reiterating the idea that because the conventional narrative contains elements of truth, discerning what actually went down on Wake Island becomes even more difficult, but also interesting. For his part, General MacArthur's side doesn't really change. He was irritated at having to travel 2,000 miles to Wake Island, just as he was concerned at Washington's issuance of new orders to him on the 9th of October. Remember, those were the orders we looked at earlier on, which essentially provided MacArthur with an option to continue the war if the Chinese intervened. John Muccio, that unfortunate American ambassador to South Korea, whom we met many moons ago in the build-up to the Korean War, recorded, as he sat with MacArthur in the plane journey to meet the president, that the general sat down beside me and very clearly reflected his disgust at being summoned for political reasons when the front and active military operations had so many calls on his time. He was mad as hell. Mad as hell indeed, as the atmosphere when Truman stepped off the plane to greet his general at 6.30am on the 15th of October was palpably cool and also uncomfortable. As we said before, neither man liked the other, but they had genuine business to attend to and so they both sped off to a hut in the only car the island had to speak alone in a meeting which lasted over an hour. Consider the fact again that Truman had seen fit to fly 7,000 miles for this meeting. What did the two men talk about? A clue is given by an account later provided by Henry Nicholson, Truman's secret service agent, who accompanied the two men in the car there. In other words, he drove for them. It must have been quite the journey as the car shuddered along the dirt roads, with two of the most important men in the Western world at that point sharing such a small space. Nicholson recalled that he overheard Truman ask MacArthur whether he thought that the Chinese would enter the Korean War, to which MacArthur replied that he thought not, but if they did, the United Nations forces could defeat them. I have been worried about that, Truman replied. We can thus make an educated guess that the topic of discussion was that of Chinese intervention. The two well-travelled figures spoke for over an hour on the subject, during which time the exceedingly well-informed Truman provided the bundles of evidence he had on hand to make his case, that case being that the Chinese and the Soviets would refrain from entering the war. It was acknowledged that some Chinese intervention was likely, some volunteers could cross the Yalu and the provision of resources was probable, but as far as Truman was concerned, MacArthur should speed up his operations to defeat North Korea before the Chinese did determine to intervene in any kind of force. According to the CIA's estimates, a large-scale military intervention by the People's Republic of China was anticipated for 1951, 
with limited aid being given to Kim Il-sung in the interim. Truman wished to see the North Korean People's Army wiped out so that elections for the Seoul government could take place, and it is then possible that he issued another instruction. He wanted MacArthur and his staff, in light of the evidence he had just provided to him, to downgrade or discredit any suggestion that the People's Republic of China was preparing for war, or that it was moving soldiers in any kind of organised manner. This conclusion is possible to take from the subsequent behaviour of MacArthur's staff, particularly that of his intelligence chief, General Willoughby, who, before the Wake Island meeting took place, estimated that between 90 and 180,000 Chinese were waiting on the Manchurian border, only to suddenly downgrade this estimate to 16,500 on the 2nd of November, after the Chinese had already made a limited show of their strength. And indeed, as late as the 25th of November, just before the major Chinese offensive was due to break, will it be declared that there was only between 40,000 and 70,000 Chinese, when, in reality by that point, nearly three-quarters of a million Chinese were preparing to enter the fight. What could be the purpose for the downgrading of the actual threat posed by China? Now, I should say again, we don't actually know firsthand what was said in the meeting. The best we have are making conclusions from what followed the meeting, and the behaviour of other people who acted very differently before and after the meeting took place, as well as, of course, the driver that brought the men there and back from that isolated hut on Wake Island. But in any case, in my view, this downgrading would only make sense if MacArthur and his staff were assured beforehand of Washington's interpretation of events. In other words, if MacArthur and his staff had been assured that Truman's administration had looked into the possibility of China intervening, and that Washington believed it wasn't going to happen, so MacArthur and his staff should parrot the same view. Having been informed of what the Chinese were expected to do, Truman could have intimated to MacArthur that it was imperative he bear these facts in mind, and discredit any intel that suggested otherwise, out of the concern that the publishing of evidence of Chinese preparations for war, even if they were very, very limited, would spook America's UN allies and also disrupt the advance through North Korea. By speaking in terms which suggested any revelations on Chinese strength could sabotage his crowning military triumph of defeating the Chinese once and for all, Truman ensured that MacArthur would be on board with this approach. Unfortunately for MacArthur, this has led historians to assume it was MacArthur who foolishly misinterpreted the actual pace of events and the growing danger emanating out of the situation. One historian even went as far as saying that, It is likely that the combined effects of his age and recent successes blinded MacArthur to the dangers he faced. At 70, MacArthur was no spring chicken, but he was far from senile. Yet MacArthur's intelligence chief, General Willoughby, didn't fare much better as the historian Clay Blair insisted that he had falsified intelligence reports, even though the CIA was responsible for the figures that Willoughby received and understating enemy forces, was by now adopted practice. After their hour-long meeting alone, the two figures returned to join their party in a building specifically prepared for a conference containing the two staffs. While some historians are content to note that no formal record of what took place in this conference exists, the fact is that all seven members of Truman's staff took their own personal notes, while MacArthur's aide was told that no record of the meeting was permitted. It isn't necessarily what the seven members of Truman's staff said, 
but what General Omar Bradley, who later compiled their accounts into a kind of record, said that really matters. Bradley's account of his peers' accounts tends to form the basis for most versions of the event, which was largely without much incident otherwise. Truman's goal had been to wrest from MacArthur a commitment to move quickly up the peninsula in the name of liberating Korea before Mao's potential intervention the following year, while the president had also gotten from MacArthur his own view on the likelihood of Chinese intervention in general. Since this view was informed and essentially provided by the intelligence which Truman had given MacArthur, we shouldn't be too surprised to denote that MacArthur left the meeting with the president even more convinced than ever before that Mao wouldn't intervene. General Omar Bradley, in his summary of the meeting, claims that MacArthur had answered very little when asked of the chances for Chinese intervention, and Bradley noted MacArthur also said, Had they interfered in the first or second months, it would have been decisive. We are no longer fearful of their intervention. We no longer stand hat in hand. The Chinese of 300,000 men in Manchuria, only 50 to 60,000 could be gotten across the Yellow River. They have no air force. Now that we have air bases for our air force in North Korea, if the Chinese tried to get down to Pyongyang, it would be the greatest slaughter. The greatest slaughter is generally what historians of the period take away when assessing what MacArthur anticipated should the Chinese intervene. This takeaway gels nicely with the notion that MacArthur was arrogant, jaded with Truman's presidency, and blinded by his previous successes to the genuine Chinese fears. And all of this may well be true, but it is also worth noting on what MacArthur said himself on the meeting at Wake Island. The differences between Bradley's account of what MacArthur said and what MacArthur actually claims to have said are stark. My views, MacArthur began, were asked as to the chances of red Chinese intervention. I replied that the answer could only be speculative, that neither the State Department, through its diplomatic listening posts abroad, North the CIA, to whom a field commander must look for guidance as a foreign nation's intervention to move from peace to war, reported any evidence of intent by the Beijing government to intervene with major forces, that my own intelligence, which I regarded as unsurpassed anywhere, reported heavy concentrations near the Yalu border in Manchuria, whose movements were indeterminate, that my own military estimate was that, with our largely unsurpassed air forces, with their potential of destroying, at will, bases of attack and lines of supply, north as well as south of the Yalu, no Chinese military commander would hazard the commitment of large forces upon the devastated Korean peninsula. The risk of their utter destruction through lack of supply would be too great. There was no disagreement from anyone. Now, note again how Bradley's account makes MacArthur sound like a headstrong, even rash commander, while MacArthur's own account portrays him as cautious, rational, and informed of the perspectives of the different departments. Bradley's account thus feeds in with what we've come to expect from MacArthur, to the extent that when MacArthur doesn't use bombastic language in his memoirs, we're almost taken by surprise. I half expected MacArthur to talk of beating down the Reds, of killing Mao where he stood. Instead, there was the judgment that no Chinese commander, in his right mind, would countenance such an action that was guaranteed to cost needless lives. If perspective was everything, then Bradley's account of the effect of building a perspective around MacArthur, which was anything but cautious and eager to engage the enemy to eliminate him once and for all. MacArthur was indeed eager to do so, especially, now this is key, especially after the plans he had been advised of by his president.
But now we move to the more straightforward parts of the Wake Island meeting, because MacArthur was not lying when he recorded his distaste for the press gathering which greeted him when he and his entourage left the island, nor was he pleased to receive a fifth medal from his president. By 12 noon, it was expected that the president and the general would continue the day over lunch. However, grumpy and embarrassed MacArthur made up some excuse about being too busy at the front. The excuse he could have used, by the way, to have avoided the whole meeting in the first place, had Truman not so startled him with those new orders on the 9th of October, don't forget. What most histories don't really communicate, though, is the fact that even if he wasn't especially fond of Truman's company by this stage, MacArthur did feel a genuinely pressing need to get back to the front. After all, he had a lot of work to do, because in light of what the president had told him, he would now be forced to change his distribution of soldiers in Korea. Where once the contingency of Chinese intervention was accounted for, now this contingency would be abandoned in return for a divided command which enabled both General Walker of the 8th Army and Major General Ned Amund of 10 Corps to operate independently of one another under orders from MacArthur in Tokyo. The original plan had been, in anticipation of a Chinese intervention, to place 10 Corps on a new flotilla of ships and send it towards Wonsan, whereupon Ammon's force could invade that port in the northeast of Korea and continue a westward advance, seriously hampering Chinese maneuverability in the process. As per his president's instructions, though, MacArthur did away with this latter deal. The plans he now developed were ones which would ensure the destruction of the North Korean People's Army as quickly as possible, but they also left his forces desperately vulnerable, with a distance of some 50 miles between the two generals, Amund and Walker, providing an ideal opportunity for any Chinese adventure to take full advantage. Historians would subsequently lambast MacArthur for his ignorance of the Chinese threat, which led him to so divide his forces, but MacArthur was only operating according to Truman's hymn sheet notes and lyrics, which the president had provided to his general. By effectively leading his general on, Truman had tied up the final loose end before the anticipated Chinese wave broke. It would come less than a fortnight after both towering figures returned home to their respective bases. In the next episode, we will continue our narrative of what happened over the last few weeks of 1950 as the eventful year saw the situation swing determinedly back in favour of the communists and MacArthur's reeling, bleeding defenders endured one of the worst winters in living memory. So bad was the outcome and so shattering was the defeat, it threatened to undo all of MacArthur's previous good work. As the general prepared to go all out and aim for the Chinese jugular, Truman would intercept yet again, leading to the culmination of a feud at the top levels of the UN command, which resulted in MacArthur waving goodbye to the army at last, but not without a bang. I hope you'll join me for that episode next time, history friends. But until then, I've been Zach, and this has been the Korean War episode 38. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.